0: Welcome to the Free the Economy podcast. I'm your host, Richard Morrison. I'm a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and this is episode 38 for September 14th, 2023. Free the Economy is about how we can all become happier, healthier, and wealthier in a world with less government control. We believe in a voluntary society where consent, rather than force, governs human interactions. And while the economy we have now offers many opportunities for financial success and self-fulfillment, we know that we can do even better. Reminder that you can always find our show notes with links to the stories we cover on the Competitive Enterprise Institute blog at cei.org slash blog. If you like the show, please leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at free the underscore economy. This week, we're going to start by covering some recent headlines and events that you should know about, and then go on to our interview with Ashley Baker of the Committee for Justice. Last week, CEI published a new study by myself and my colleague Ian Murray on the so-called Powell Memo. This document from the early 1970s has generated a lot of comment, analysis, and debate, with its status in American political history becoming even more contentious as the years have passed. It's been name-checked and referenced even more over the last decade than it was in the first 10 years after it was written. Here's the background. In 1971, Lewis Powell, a prominent Republican attorney who would later go on to serve on the Supreme Court, wrote a memo warning about increasing political hostility to free enterprise in the United States. He identified several related threats and recommended to his friends at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that they undertake a campaign of free market education and advocacy. The memo, though originally directed specifically at the chamber, began circulating among free market activists and philanthropists, convincing many of its readers to pursue activism in support of capitalist economy and the property, association, expression, and due process rights that make it possible. Many leaders of the modern liberty movement were influenced by Powell's warning and adopted one or more of his recommendations for countering the threats he outlined. Eventually, the Powell Memo would have another major influence— this time on left-leaning policy advocates who were hostile to its goals. To some progressive critics, the Powell memo was a sort of secret master plan for what they saw as a right-wing takeover of American democracy. Every conservative economic policy victory for half a century ended up being described after the fact as fitting into this supposedly nefarious plan that the memo had laid out. Whereas Powell and his allies saw their efforts as restoring a virtuous pre-existing balance between private and government power, progressives saw the conservative movement as a dangerous unbalancing of a reasonable equilibrium, that is, the de facto detente by which post-World War II Republicans had effectively accepted the expansion of federal power that had started with the New Deal. While well, many of the strategies Lewis Powell recommended in 1971 yielded significant policy wins. It's reasonable for advocates of free markets and limited government today to look back at the United States roughly half a century later and ask whether we face a similar way of threats. Government spending and the federal deficit have grown dramatically since then. Regulation of all kinds has increased and has had the compliance costs borne by Americans. Dynamism and economic growth since 1971 have been significantly slower than the 1945 to 1971 era that Powell himself was looking back at. The Soviet Union and the Marxist and Maoist student radicals of the early 70s may be a spent force now, but their respectable progeny exert a great deal of influence in the government, advocacy groups, and still surprisingly to some, even corporate America. We don't have weather underground terrorists setting off bombs and robbing armored cars, but we do have government agencies trying to weaponize financial regulation to drive an anti-democratic political agenda on topics related to environmental, social, and governance, or ESG investing regulations in particular. The threats Lewis Powell sized up in 1971 have changed, but economic freedom will always face threats from people who have decided that the government knows how to manage your money better than you do. For more details, you can read the full study at cei.org. The Wall Street Journal has a fascinating article this week on the future of innovation and technology, But it's not about AI or semiconductors. It's about old polyester clothes. These days, polyester is in almost every kind of clothing, from cheap to designer. But when people are done with their clothes, it almost always goes into landfills or gets incinerated. No one's grandmother is out there making a patchwork quilt or a rag rug out of old Adidas windbreakers. This, despite the fact that there are chemical processes available that can recycle old poly clothing into new fibers with no loss of desirable physical properties, such as strength or flexibility. Textile producers have now developed processes that use heat, water, pressure, and chemical solvents to break down existing polyester clothes and separate out the dyes, the waterproof coatings, and other blended fibers. The resulting goop is then heated up and the liquefied polyester is drained off and cooled into chips or granules that can be reused and turned into fibers for new clothes. The journal's Jamie Waters points out that the fiber recycling space is seeing a burst of investment in new startups and big clothing companies like H&M and Zara are expressing interest in using more recycled polyester in new clothing items. That's great and it's an example of what I like to call non-computer tech innovation. Ever since I hit college in the mid-1990s and the consumer internet revolution was taking off, Americans seem to have become obsessed with the idea that anything innovative or technological had to be somehow connected to the world of computing and likely connected to the internet as well. But that takes a far too narrow view of things. Materials engineering, manufacturing processes, behavioral therapy, genetic engineering, pharmaceutical research, and many other areas are just as much tech as new digital products are. Obviously, in the 21st century, people working in these areas make use of computers and specialized software in their research, but the underlying technology exists in the physical world. Even creating new robotics advances has to do with getting the physical parts to work together and stand up to wear and tear as much as it does with the programming itself. Technology is simply the application of scientific knowledge for practical purposes, and those purposes can be anything that human beings find to be of value. Going forward... The biggest innovation of the year is just as likely to end up being advanced plastics recycling as it is a new positronic brain. The high cost of housing is one of the most important economic topics in the U.S. today, with some observers insisting that practically every social ill besetting younger Americans is derived from it in one way or another. In objective terms, housing prices have been increasing much more rapidly than incomes for many years, and that's just the average, And the nation's most popular urban areas, prices, even when accounting for higher earning potential in big cities, are even higher. The national median home price in the third quarter of 2022 was $398,000, requiring a payment of $2,233 a month and a qualifying household income of over $95,000 a year. San Jose, California, on the other hand, where the median home price is $1.7 million, that requires a monthly payment of $8,380 and a qualifying income of over $359,000. Rental costs have also increased in recent years, leading many analysts to start looking around for counterexamples, that is, places with desirable big cities where housing has actually stayed affordable. Enter Tokyo. New York Times editorial board member Benjamin Applebaum recently wrote an article on how Japan's capital city has managed to achieve population growth without skyrocketing prices. He draws a comparison with the biggest city in the U.S. Quote, Two full-time workers earning Tokyo's minimum wage can comfortably afford the average rent for a two-bedroom apartment in six of the city's 23 wards. By contrast, two people working minimum wage jobs cannot afford the average rent for a two-bedroom apartment in any of the 23 counties in the New York metropolitan area. End quote. One thing that Tokyo has done is allowed dense housing construction near transit lines. Applebaum writes, again, when viewed from above, quote, Tokyo appears as a vast sea of low and mid-rise buildings laced with archipelagos of high rises, each island marking the location of a station along one of the city's railroad lines, end quote. Allowing property owners to build as high as their real estate holdings and financing can take them would be ideal, but if we must have site-specific zoning, setting aside plots of lands near rail lines for the tallest buildings would certainly be an improvement. Times article also points out that rising prices and unaffordability in major urban areas is a relatively new phenomenon. In a 2014 study, the economist Katerina Knoll and her co-authors concluded that urban housing prices in industrialized nations held steady from 1870 all the way through 1950, despite rapid population growth, because transportation innovations expanded the area in which people could live. In the second half of the 20th century, complex zoning codes expanded, often driven by poorly concealed biases and motives, Existing homeowners used their local political clout to limit what could be built where, privileging their own preferences and boosting their own home values. By contrast, Tokyo city leaders seem to have gone out of their way to make it easier for developers to build. A national zoning law in Japan, for example, preempts the ability of local governments to slow down or forbid development. Tokyo residents have also not become obsessed with slapping a historic preservation designation on any building just because it's old. Because it's cheaper and easier to build, older structures are more likely to be torn down and replaced with newer models that current buyers prefer. But new construction doesn't necessarily mean luxury housing. In a constrained market, like most big U.S. cities, developers need to be able to squeeze every penny out of projects to make them worthwhile So the overwhelming motive is to aim for the top of the income ladder of both buyers and renters. In a market like Tokyo, builders can still get a decent return on much more humble projects. All of this is somewhat surprising to someone like me, who was a kid in the 1980s when stories of Japan's, and especially Tokyo's, insane real estate prices were the stuff of legend. As an article in Vanity Fair described back in 2009, quote, at its height in 1989, Real estate in Tokyo sold for as much as 139,000 a square foot, more than 350 times as much as choice property in Manhattan. Such valuations made the land under the Imperial Palace in Tokyo notionally worth more than all of the real estate in California, quote." Of course, the boom times in Japan came crashing down and real estate prices dropped back to earth, but Tokyo real estate was and is still desirable. Even with Japan's infamous economic stagnation after the bubble bursting, the city remained a popular international capital with plenty of business development and a magnet for educated young people in Japan who kept moving to the city even as population growth nationwide slowed. So the fact that a largely hands-off and pro-development attitude towards zoning has been so successful there is noteworthy. Big American cities like New York and San Francisco could learn a lot from them. Finally, my distinguished colleague Wayne Cruz has a new blog post up this week on troubling trends regarding government transparency from the Biden administration. Wayne writes, quote, laws passed by Congress get cataloged in the U.S. code, while rules land in the Code of Federal Regulations, which sprawls out at over 186,000 pages. However, the so-called sub-regulatory guidance documents far outnumber both laws and regulations, these encompass a wide range of materials, including agency memoranda, notices, bulletins, directives, news releases, and even speeches by agency officials, and they're getting harder to track, end quote. Wayne's most recent informal inventory of such documents found over 103,000 accessible or semi-accessible guidance documents. This was actually a decline from 107,000 years ago, but that's not because things have actually gotten simpler. Rather, the Biden administration is becoming less transparent and documents are disappearing from public view. During the Trump administration, executive branch officials took steps to enhance transparency by requiring agencies to streamline guidance documents and then present new ones on user-friendly web portals. Fortunately, President Biden directed agencies to repeal these disclosure and accountability initiatives at the beginning of the administration. The junking of Trump era transparency measures also occurred at the same time that the administration was seeking to expand its executive authority and issue new regulations in some agencies at a record pace. One of the positive developments that Wayne mentions is on the legislative front with the Guidance Out of Darkness or Good Act, which with bipartisan support aims to enforce the disclosure of guidance documents on dedicated web portals, despite setbacks under the current administration Some remnants of those previous agency portals do remain accessible, meaning that there's a far greater number of documents accessible now than prior to 2017, when disclosure truly was abysmal. Those are the headlines for episode 38. Now we'll move on to our interview with Ashley Baker. Now, I'd like to welcome to the show, Ashley Baker, Director of Public Policy at the Committee for Justice. Welcome to Free the Economy, Ashley.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Okay, now it's time to get litigious. So, the Supreme Court's last term just ended a few months ago, and the final decisions from last year were uh, announced at the end of June. Uh, but people are already looking forward to the new 2023-2024 Supreme Court term, and uh, and uh, those cases are going to be argued starting in uh, October. Uh, so we're going to dive into some of those top cases that we're looking ahead to. Uh, but first, could you give us sort of a micro overview of the last session? Because uh, right, the in, in my mind, the big cases that stand out are uh, uh, Harvard and UNC Affirmative Action, Biden administration student loan, uh, the same-sex wedding website case in Colorado, and then I guess Sackett versus EPA, which was about like water regulations. Uh, is there any kind of like, first of all, from your end, is there any super big thing about uh, last term that you think is really important to focus on? Or is there an overall trend in the decisions and the majorities we saw?
1: Sure. I would say one uh, major trend, and this is a, one of several major trends, but also one of several major trends that are kind of in, in line with the cases from this term that I'm about to talk to about, or at least in, in line with the courts having granted those cases, is the court, the Roberts Court, taking a bite at the administrative state and um, taking a closer look at the constitutional separation of powers. And that's one thing that all the cases that you went into, for the most part, um, really had in common. Two two of the cases you mentioned, for example, Biden v. Nebraska, that's uh, that was one of the major cases of of the past term, obviously, and and in theme with your podcast and economic data in terms of, you know, law and economics as well, that was really significant because they predicted that the economic and political significance of Biden's you know, debt cancellation was somewhere between 469 and 519 billion um, so talk about as Justice Lee would say hiding elephants in mouse holes, which you know isn't exactly quite the correct analogy here, given that um, given that it was done through executive order, but certainly was not authorized by Congress. So you so you have the Roberts Court kind of looking at the separation of powers issue and you know how much. Agencies can be delegated. How you know what the scope of their authority is, and also you know how explicit Congress needs to be in delegating or not delegating that authority. And if the the silent if the statute is silent, then you know, the agency doesn't necessarily have power to act there. And I think the court has reaffirmed that time after time over the past two terms.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that uh, I think people who are not like uh, attorneys, legal theorists, pundits, you know, court watchers, uh, sometimes don't get the the difference between the sort of instant details of a case and then sort of like the bigger implications of it. So if they see a case like, well, it's about, uh, say, you know, student loans, uh, it's not always the court deciding whether canceling student loans is a good idea or a bad idea. The question is whether, like in this case, the president has the authority to do something like this via an executive order versus having Congress authorize it. So it's really not And I think a lot of people get hung up on the like the the specific details of a lot of these cases um and 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 don't think quite as much about, well, the real question the court is deciding is what is government supposed to do, what is what are various parts of the government allowed to do. And that could actually be completely different from what any of them think is the virtues of the the specific policy itself.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And that's kind of how, that's what drives public opinion, especially at the time that these cases are released and you see a lot of I would say pretty hyperbolic headlines, and and that's always the case every term. It's been more increasingly the case in, in recent years. Now that there is a conservative majority, but you know, we have people looking at the policy, and it's not exactly it's not the job of a judge or justice to make that policy. Um, it's them to you know call the balls and strikes when it comes to what the law is and what the statute says. So a lot of these are really at the end of the day more of a matter of that's of statutory interpretation, or whether or not it's constitutional for the administration to do what they are doing. And in a lot of cases recently, they have ruled no, it's not. Um, and that's regardless of who is in the White House, too. By the way, this isn't something that just these principles don't apply to just the Biden administration; they apply to any administration.
0: Right now, as far as new cases coming up, we have uh, a a case called Loper Bright Enterprises versus Ramondo. So. Uh, again, on the surface, that case is about a National Marine Fisheries Service regulation that requires fishermen to uh, pay the costs of observers from the government who stand on their boat and see whether they're complying with the fishing rules or not. But the deeper question here is really about uh, how much, uh, among other things, how much deference federal courts should give to federal agencies when they decide to write their own rules. What's what's your take on Loper Bright?
1: So, Lipper Bright, if anyone here has seen the movie Coda that won the Academy Award for Best Picture a couple of years ago, that is, by the way, um, the same regulation there. And it's analogous to if you're, you're driving down the highway and an agency wants you to, I mean, maybe this is a perfectly analogous, no analogy in the law is, um, wants to prevent you from speeding. You'd have to pay you know, for the police officer or the you know, regulator to sit in your passenger seat and make sure that you're doing what you're doing. And that would um, impact your day to day life and your financial system. Situation very much so. But the question that's really being considered there is this something we call the Chevron Doctrine, or specifically the case Chevron versus Natural Resource Defense Council. And it's something that's been a bit in the spotlight for the past, I would say, four or five years more publicly, I mean, more for those of us who work in administrative law, a lot longer than that. And the question that the court granted here um, in considering this case is um, whether or not Chevron should be overruled. And there's a second for that question, too, whether or not. Um, if it should be overruled, or if it should at least be clarified, so that uh, that such a sort of silence concerning controversial powers expressly but narrowly granted elsewhere in the statutes do not constitute an ambiguity regarding deference to the agency. So under Chevron, when the statute is vague, it's ambiguous, then courts have to instead of making coming up with their own decision through um, you know the normal role of the courts, they have to defer to the interpretation of those agencies. So that's what's coming into question. This is a really big um, case and a really big question that the court is about to decide.
0: So in this case, you have, uh, say, like an agency like the Environmental Protection Agency, the the original uh, agency that was subject to the the, the Chevron uh, decision. Uh, The Chevron doctrine gives the agency a lot of ability to sort of define what their own power is in a way. And and this I feel like is when by a lot of people in the like conservative legal movement have said, well, maybe this is this is this is not a great thing because uh we want more responsibility to be with Congress and and we don't want the agencies to be making their own rules and then deciding when they apply.
1: Yes, that's correct. So I would point out though that at the time there was an element of this so it's kind of Almost, I, I wouldn't call it overcorrection. It's an overexpansion problem. But at the time, there was also a concern about these policies being written by courts. So there were some you know, valid concerns back, you know, at, at the time of Chevron being decided, um, that were very much the opposite of the problem we have today, though, because now we have the courts who, you know, there's not much power in Article Three here and then you have um this entire body of law that's been built off of Chevron over the years and went in kind of clarifies when they can um, or, or not clarifies, but expands when agencies can interpret the scope of their own authority, how much they can interpret that and whether or not they can also kind of you know, ping pong back and forth and change their mind. Um, as Brand X later said, um, as we saw, like the net neutrality cases, for example, and um, with every administration, we get an FCC that says the opposite of what the previous FCC said. And they said, OK, well, we can defer to our own interpretation even when it's you know the opposite even when it's vague ambiguous so we have a lot that was kind of born of the chevron doctrine itself
0: i think that's a really good point especially about uh chevron because if you go uh further back among uh in the sort of a conservative legal movement what what conservatives uh were were saying about uh courts and deference and things like that uh back in like the 60s and 70s you know You had conservatives complain about the imperial judiciary. You know, we shouldn't have these judge made laws. And there was a feeling that the judges, uh, the uh, federal judges were uh, like left wing activist judges and that and that that was terrible. Um, And the uh, the the EPA officials that got the deference in the original Chevron case were. Ronald Reagan's appointed EPA director, right? the original Chevron case, let Reagan's EPA may, may, you know, sort of interpret their own rules, and that was a win for them when they were being sued by environmental activists from the Natural Resources Defense Council. Um, so we've we've in 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 a, in a huge cycle of multi decades in a way we've gone from on, from the beginning with uh, Republican officials and conservatives saying uh, judges have way too much uh, authority. Um, we should have the agencies uh, have more authority, uh, and then in more recent years they said, "Well, no, 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 no. The agencies now have too much authority, so we need to like correct back."
1: Way, yes. Um, I, I would say. I mean, I, I think your categorization is a little bit too political, almost in, in terms of you know who which, um, administration was was in power at the time. But one thing I, I would point to though is. What judges that, you know, when they made the Chevron decision, and what people didn't realize at the time, too, was how Congress would just stop writing laws as explicitly. Um, and just kick the can down the road to these agencies, and also the entire you know, body of law that would evolve after Chevron. Um, and I, I think they didn't realize, you know, what exactly this would lead to. And that's the same with, you know, Brand X, for example. Which Justice Thomas, by the way, who was um, the original author of the Brand X decision, wrote in 2020, and um, a dissent from the denying of a the cert petition that, you know, maybe I was wrong here. Maybe we should go back and reevaluate re-evalu- this um, because it. The these agencies have become a very different creature than what um, they were at the time. And a lot of that too, is because Congress has not, you know, been explicit in, in writing laws and have you know, given a lot of power to these agencies.
0: Yeah, I guess, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm sure it's right that the, the people making those decisions, the judge uh, judges writing those decisions weren't necessarily thinking about them in uh, partisan and ideological terms themselves, but in terms of the, the general opinion of, ideologues looking at the court. Right. There's been an interesting sort of shift over you know what they think is uh the correct balance on this, you know, uh courts versus executive agencies versus uh Congress and policymaking. Uh well let's let's go on to the next case. Next up. Securities and exchange commission versus Jarkesy. So the original dispute here is between the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, and talk radio host and hedge fund manager uh George Jarkesy uh, the SEC uh, accused him of uh securities fraud and uh adjudicated that case through one of their their in-house judges and uh Jerksy and his attorneys disputed that and and now there's a d- question about whether uh the SEC should be able to adjudicate these uh securities cases in-house or whether they should have to go to a uh, what we call article 3 court Yes. What's your take on that one?
1: So, so that pretty much sums it up. And the Securities and Change Commission isn't the only agency that has, uh, has this sort of system, has these in-house proceedings. The Federal Trade Commission does as well. But basically, the the, court, the question being considered is what you just described, but also whether or not those in-house proceedings, which, you know, is done within the agency. It's brought by the agency. It's in front of the administrative law judge that is um, subject to, it, it is cannot be removed at will, um, is subject to removal protections. And also, so it's, you know, judge, jury, executioner, it's all the Securities and Exchange Commission here. So the several questions being considered is whether or not that uh, it fits, if, is a violation of the Seventh Amendment when it comes to jury trial, but also whether or not the for the removability of the ALJs itself, whether or not that structure is constitutional, and whether or not all of this, if it, um, if it violates the non-delegation doctrine too. So that there is a three-part question. There's a lot being considered here. It was a really interesting case coming out of the Fifth Circuit, actually, and we have uh, a Fifth Circuit that's gotten quite, um, they've taken up a, a, quite a few cases that are administrative law Related, so we'll see. It's interesting. This also comes on the back of Axon versus FTC last year, and in that opinion, that was a it was a. There are two cases that were considered in parallel, one involving the Federal Trade Commission, one involving the SEC. Um, Axon versus FTC, which was consolidated with the other SEC case, essentially said that you have to if you if the company has a or someone who is subject to these enforcement proceedings if they have a collateral constitutional claim, such as the ones that Jarquez is making, such as saying that that this entire process is unconstitutional, this is a violation of my rights, they don't have to exhaust that in-house procedure before going to federal court. Because by the time they, it's a huge violation of due process and that by the time they get out of that administrative proceeding, which if they do, because a lot of, Uh, Those who are subject to these enforcement proceedings, they settle or some companies go bankrupt. They usually don't necessarily make it to the end of these proceedings. Um, So they shouldn't have to wait until then if they have constitutional concerns. So we had that last term and we have D'Archese this term. Uh, There are three questions being considered. So we'll see exactly where the court decides to go with this. I think that would be interesting. And We have two justices particularly who have written a good bit about removability and we have Justice Roberts and also Kavanaugh, who have written in lower courts about this. So we'll have to see. This is a really interesting case, though.
0: Well, yeah, like, when in cases like this come up, I feel like uh, a lot of uh, regular people will, will will sort of tune out to it, thinking like, "Well, what is this? What does this have to do with me? I don't, I don't run a hedge fund, uh, right? I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not worried about." anything i do in my daily life being subject to a securities and exchange commission uh you know uh, enforcement action uh but you know maybe not so much with a removable question but with the like the right to a jury trial the due process question the to me anyway uh the question is this is about does a federal government agency have to respect your due process rights or not (laughs) right in my you know in my view at least the uh uh, complaint uh and the 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 wider complaint about this is in house adjudication um uh, rather than re- real courts and real judges uh it's the government stacking the deck in its own favor like you said uh functioning sort of as judge jury and executioner all at one um and even if a person uh looks at this and says well i'm never gonna i'm i not worried about ever encountering the s e c myself uh it is still in your and everyone's interest to have a federal government, which is required to observe and protect our due process rights, <laughs> even if this particular case, you don't think it applies to you.
1: Absolutely. And just because it's a lot, well, to go through an administrative proceeding instead of, or three, another, you know, to make a somewhat of an analogy here, back to the FTC, you know, antitrust cases, for example, they can go through either the, FTC, there's dual enforcement authority, FTC, DOJ. If it's DOJ, it goes straight to federal court. Um, if it's FTC, they have the option of doing that or not. So whether or not you get the full extent of your meaningful due process rights is really up to a coin toss there. And the SEC also has the ability to bring them in-house. And going back to kind of our theme about the, the constitutional separation of powers, this is all all goes hand in hand, too, especially with the administrative law judges not being necessarily removable except for um, for cause. Same goes with the commissioners. And that is a question that hasn't been granted by the court yet, but you see this insulation that is going on in which these ALJs, the agencies more generally, are pretty insulated from the you know, other three branches of government, um, and that they can do this on their own. And no matter what Congress has, in, in the case of independent agencies, and a, a lot of cases not It doesn't matter really what the administration thinks uh, of those officials; um, they can still enjoy that removal protection and also enforce the law.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Now another one. Uh, We have uh, Community Financial Services Association of America versus the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Mm -hmm. So, so in this case, uh, Consumer Financial Services Association is a trade association of uh, 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 lenders. Uh, Their CFSA is challenging the cfpb consumer financial protection bureau's rule about uh payday loans and uh, small small loans and uh direct lending and how they can um make those loans and collect on uh collect them back um so the trade association of the people who make payday loans challenged this rule that the cfpb put out about uh, uh, conditions um, but the the bigger question this time uh, is maybe even bigger than the case of the SEC case, which is just about the you know adjudication of certain enforcement proceedings. Whereas the uh, the the payday loan people are saying that the CFPB is sort of the entire structure of it is unconstitutional. That the entire agency sort of well, shouldn't exist um, because in part because of how it's funded, this sort of eccentric way that's not common with other federal agencies. What what do we need to know about that?
1: Yes, so so in that case, the the question is really whether or not, unlike a lot of other federal agencies or most other federal agencies, which have to go through the congressional appropriations process, it is funded um, directly out. Um, it's funded directly out of the treasury, so it's. You know it's an issue of whether or not that funding structure is actually constitutional. And what the implications will be it remains to be seen. And sometimes with these cases, it, rem- it depends on whether or not the provision that's being challenged is severable from the rest of the agency's you know founding statute. Um, So sometimes if it is, that means you basically, you know, Congress can either buy the case by passing some sort of law that brings it under that umbrella or it's only the impact is relatively limited. In this case, though, I think the CFPB is making an argument. It seems that this will be massively impactful to their other agency actions, it seemed based on their last brief, um, whether or not it will be, that you know, depends on really what the court decides here, I'm saying this is only one regulation uh, or one package of regulations that's being challenged, but it does call into question all of the agency's actions and that of other agencies that have similar funding structures as well. Um, but the CFEB particularly is um, kind of at risk here, and this isn't the first time the court in recent years has taken a buy of the CFEB either. They ruled in CELA law in 2020, that uh, on the removability question regarding the head of the CFPB and whether or not that person is insulated from removability and said no, they are not. So we'll see where they go and if they continue to have headed that direction when it comes to the agency. Because there are a lot of problems with the CFPB in the way um, that the agency itself is structured, and almost the way like the PCAOB, which was eventually declared unconstitutional as a whole, um, was structured as well.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think it's interesting to sort of. Just talk for a second about why, why why does it matter that this agency gets its money from point A or, or point B. Uh, you know, normally uh, all these federal agencies have uh, uh, like you said, have to go through the congressional appropriations process, which is every year. Congress writes a piece of legislation that says, this is how much money every agency gets, and there's a lot of debate over it right often, very contentious debate, right? and And, and that is the, the political process that we expect right, uh our elected representatives decide which policy priorities are uh you know get the most resources and which maybe get slightly less, and that's that's what Congress is there for um but but you know in the case of the c f p b uh they just get to go to the Federal Reserve and say, well, we'd like a billion dollars for our budget, please <laughs> right, and right. so that r- removes you know democratic accountability but also a certain you know uh F- fiscal discipline, right, where where the agency can just sort of ask for as much money as it wants, where it doesn't have to to fight, as I think it should, with, with all the other, you know, there's a lot of things that the federal government spends money on. We spend more money than we have already, but there should be at least some balancing of priorities. And that seems like what Congress is supposed to be there for when it comes to appropriating uh, money. So it's not, it's not just, you know, again, my, my, my take on this is that it's not just, some minor technical detail that the CFPB gets its funding different from other agencies. It's bad that it's different in this particular case for important reasons that have to do with, you know, our democracy and constitution.
1: Yes, no, that's absolutely right. When they can go straight to the Federal Reserve and not go through the congressional pop process, that process that leads to appropriations. And I I agree with you, there's way too much government spending, I think there should be way more debate over exactly how that money is spent. But at least, you know, if you're going through the appropriations process, there is democratic accountability, there's, you know, two sides arguing, you know, two sides of this Debates and you know, taxpayers who are paying attention in terms of how exactly government money is being spent. Um, and that's also how the separation of powers, once again, is supposed to work, and that Congress does control the power of the purse there. And they that is the, the process that's closest to you know the people, to a democracy, to and that's you know, money is used to um, you know, to fund things that really impact people on a day-to-day basis. And when there's no accountability when they can go straight to um the government to the first branch and not have to go through, sorry, to the executive and not go through um through the normal debate and the normal appropriations process.
0: Now uh we got one more here that is uh, near and dear to our hearts at CEI, and it's more of the United States, uh the case challenging the uh, the mandatory repatriation tax which was part of the tax cuts and job act in 2017 uh i think a lot of a lot of people i know were uh fairly big big fans of the tax cuts and job act in general uh that's you know the the sort of trump tax cut bill you know big big tax reform in 2017 uh but this part what i'm sure seemed like a very tiny part at the time uh is is a problem uh so the it has to do with uh uh, overseas investments and taxing them and uh the problem is that it is it's in the position of taxing what we call unrealized gains which is you know theoretically you invested in something and the 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 value of it went up but you haven't uh you know cashed that money out or used it for anything and so it's not in what people would know what the irs would normally call income uh so it wouldn't normally be something you could tax but in the tcjn 2017 they said yes it is uh so uh this is uh an issue it's a constitutional issue uh about whether this kind of this kind of money is something that uh it's even it's even constitutional uh to be subject to tax or not because of course this country unlike some others does not have a wealth tax has to be income before it's taxed uh and uh so we don't have to spend a, a ton of time on this because we did a whole episode 9 interview with my distinguished colleague Jan greenberg um but uh, what do you think is this do you think this is going to be big? Is it going to be is it is it kind of like um, uh, uh, a minor technical case? Because uh, I think it I think it could be very interesting.
1: I, I think it could be big, I mean, not just because the subject matter, and all the good points you just made about how, the impact of that. But if we even had Senator Durbin calling on. Um, Calling for Chief Justice Roberts to make Alito accuse in this case and in a scheduling order that was sometime last week. Uh, we saw Justice Lito kind of write, um on the side of that saying, no way, that's not happening. Um here are all the reasons why. Um don't get too much into the recusal debate because there's there's a lot to a lot to unpack there. But uh it, but we saw Senator Durbin asking Alito to recuse just because he did an interview for the Wall Street Journal with David Rifkin, who represents one of the parties in the case and he interview had absolutely nothing to do with about the case. It had to do about the jobs leak and the court and um, a number of other broader topics. It had absolutely nothing to do here. So if that's any indication um, of where this might be going, it seems that those who like the tax, like taxes the most are really nervous about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so so there's that. But I do think there is a very you know, practical side of this, as you were pointing out, in terms of unrealized capital gains and the broader effect of this case. Yes.
0: All right. Now, lots of people in uh, D.C. and uh, the legal world are are following, you know, are following these cases. But, you know, none of them are as controversial as some of the the very biggest cases uh, from recent years, like, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade being overturned by Dobbs. You know, that was like the really big, you know, nuclear nuclear blast that everyone paid attention to, even if they don't don't normally care about federal courts or, or even the Supreme Court. Which one of, of these cases do you think is going to be kind of the the standout in the next term? Uh, even, if it, even if none of them is big as as big as, you know, Roe and Dobbs. Uh, what do you think is going to kind of like capture people's uh, attention or is it going to or no one's going to pay any attention till till we have decisions? What do you think?
1: It's hard to say. And it's. At the end of the day, at you know at the end of this term, for example, uh, it's there. There are always a couple of cases that are always usually decided in that last week or so, and those are considered the more controversial ones. And this. The past term, I would say that ended up being the affirmative action case, obviously um, Harvard U.N.C. case, and also Biden v. Nebraska, the student loan case, because that is the one that the media, the ones that the media pay the most attention to, the ones that have kind of that narrative that um, can be pushed, or about more practical and less kind of esoteric issues such as um, administrative law judges and um, the separation of powers. But it's hard to say for next term. And I would point out too that there are a lot of cert petitions that are hundreds that have not been reviewed and either granted or denied. And we'll find out more about those in the next couple of weeks because the um what they call the loan conference, which is the one after the end of the summer, which the judge justices come back and they consider all these certain positions that have been filed. And then the following Monday, which is not his first um, Monday, the first Monday of October, um, there's, there's an order list and there are lots of pending cases that the judges, sorry, the justices will be looking at on September 26th. And then the term starts again on October 2nd. So over those next couple of weeks, we'll see orders come out in which they do grant more cases. So there might be some more controversial things related to, um let's see, I'm just using this as an example, the Second Amendment, there are some, you know, gun rights type cases um, floating around out there. I've paid less attention to those because we haven't filed any amicus briefs as an organization in one of those cases in a number of years, or at least we haven't this term. So that that's always a big issue. Anything related to you know, online speech, for example, that's a big issue. But right now, the I do think Bloomberg Bright is pretty big in what is being considered, and you will see the media take that out of context and say, you know, this allows the e- this makes the EPA completely powerless. This you know it will lead to pollution. This you see all that in Sackett versus EPA, for example. You know, this will lead us all of be drinking lead water by next week. Um, and you see that sort of hyperbole out there. So I, I think in terms of the administrative law cases we just discussed, the obvious
0: one would be looper bright. All right. So we'll, we'll be on the edges of our seat looking for, uh, the beginning of October to see if the court, uh, decides to take any of those yet unannounced, uh, controversial, uh, challenges, uh, that we will, we will, we'll definitely, I will be speculating wildly between now and then, uh, to see what else gets picked up. But, uh, until we know that, uh, we will, uh, take your analysis to heart. And uh, look forward to what comes next. So, before we go, tell us where everyone can find you and all of your excellent analysis online.
1: Sure. Everyone can find me. Um, you can find me either via Twitter or on our website. My Twitter handle is and Ashley says. Um, my name is Ashley Baker, Director of Policy, Committee for Justice. And our Committee for Justice website is committeeforjustice.org.
0: All right. Excellent. Thanks so much. That's our show for this week. This has been episode 38 of Free the Economy. I'm your host, Richard Morrison. Our producers are Scooter Schaefer, Phoebe Gersten, and Ryan Krasinski. Our technical advisor is Ryan Lynch. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for episode 39.